What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Hello, I'm Zainab Badawi. Welcome to this Intelligence Squared debate here in Cadogan Hall in London, when we'll be debating whether the West should loosen its ties with Saudi Arabia. When King Abdullah died in January, Western leaders flocked to his funeral, a clear sign that they saw the House of Saud as a key ally in a turbulent region where extremists are gaining ground. Yet, Saudi Arabia is a conservative society. Look at its treatment of women, its public beheadings, its floggings, and of course, its export of puritanical religious beliefs. And this has led others to say it is time to end this decades-long alliance with Riyadh. So, our motion today is the West should get out of bed with the House of Saud. And we have an excellent panel for you. We have arguing for the motion Mona Al-Tahawi, Egyptian-American journalist and human rights campaigner. Also Hilary Mann Leverett, US foreign policy expert and former career diplomat. Arguing against the motion, James Rubin, former US State Department official and British Conservative MP Sir Alan Duncan, who until last year was Minister of State for International Development. That is our panel. Welcome to you all. In a moment, we're going to hear our four speakers present their arguments to you, and then we're going to have the debate open to the floor. Now, as our audience was coming into Cadogan Hall, we actually polled our audience to see where they stand on the motion. I'll be bringing you that result after we've heard our speakers, and then our audience will also be asked to vote again at the end of the debate to see if any opinions have shifted and whether that's had an impact on the uh, result. Um, but first of all, we're going to have our um, opening statement from the panellists. And speaking first for the motion, Mona Al-Tahawi. Now, she writes and provides commentary on Egypt, the Islamic world, and women's rights. She was named by Newsweek magazine as one of its 150 fearless women of 2012. I know Mona, and boy, does she deserve that uh, title. Mona lives in Cairo and New York. 
Good evening, everyone. I'm very glad to be here, and I look forward to a rollicking debate. In January, 10 days before the Saudi king, Abdullah, died, a woman from Burma was dragged to a public square in Mecca, the holiest site for Muslims. She was held down by four Saudi policemen as she screamed, I did not kill, I did not kill, after which an executioner took three blows to behead her. This woman at the time was just the 10th person to be executed in Saudi Arabia. But now, under the reign of King Salman, that number is up to 88. And that number outnumbers the number of people that Saudi Arabia executed last year. Now, Saudi Arabia is in an illustrious company, including that of the United States, of course, because along with three other countries, they're in the top five of the countries that execute people. Now, I oppose the death penalty everywhere. But especially in a country like Saudi Arabia, where human rights groups have long documented the injustice under which people are beheaded. Most of the people who've been executed in Saudi Arabia this year have been either Saudis or people from poor countries such as Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and other developing countries. Human rights groups have made it very clear that the so-called trials after which these people are beheaded in public squares are done often with no legal representation, are often conducted in Arabic, a language that most of the people on trial do not understand, and often those people are forced to sign confessions, again in Arabic, that they don't understand. You often hear the Saudi royal family use the term exceptionalism, that Saudi Arabia is different than other countries, and that the Saudi royal family will help the people develop and progress because of this exceptional atmosphere. In reality, it's the Saudi royal family that is exceptional. Exceptional in its brutality, exceptional in its dictatorship, and exceptional in its gender apartheid. I'm a proud Muslim, and the Islam that is practiced in Saudi Arabia is unlike the Islam practiced anywhere else, including my country of birth, Egypt. In Saudi Arabia, there are more women than men on university campuses. They recognize the value of knowledge. But what do women do after they get this knowledge on their campuses? What happens to them in this exceptional environment? They basically have to go home and watch men who are much less qualified than they are get jobs that they cannot have. Saudi Arabia is a country, again, I remind you, that says it's exceptional and needs to develop slowly. If it was so exceptional, why are all those activists that you rarely hear about out there fighting to prove that they are ready for freedom. Have you heard of Raif Badawi, a blogger who was sentenced to 10 years in jail and 1,000 lashes? His crime, he set up a website for Saudi liberals and dared to question the version of Islam that the Saudi royal family promotes as the true Islam. This is Saudi Arabia, and you will know in this country what it is that keeps the West in bed with the Saudi regime. It is basically money oil, and weapons. This country has a long history of selling weapons to the Saudis, and you will remember the Al Yamama scandal in which BAE sold billions of pounds of weapons to Saudi Arabia that enriched arms manufacturers in this country and enriched Saudi princes in one of the biggest corruption scandals that was broken by the, the UK media here. Canada, 
a country that often likes to boast has a progressive record, whether it comes to women's rights or human rights generally, is currently embroiled in its own weapon scandal because although Canadian, the Canadian government policy forbids the government from selling weapons to countries that violate human rights, the Canadian government just brokered a deal worth $15 million to sell armored personnel carriers to Saudi Arabia. Who do you think the Saudis use those weapons against? When they're not bombing Yemeni civilians, they're using those weapons against their own population. Again, those peaceful activists who are trying to be free and to give the lie to this idea that the Saudi Arabian experience of dictatorship is somehow exceptional. So, weapons, weapons deals, oil, and the hypocrisy of the West, a story that you hear over and over, and yet the West refuses to get out of bed with the Saudi royal family. Perhaps it's ironic, but it speaks volumes to that hypocrisy, that the truest thing said about the Saudis from the U.S. administration was in a fictional show called West Wing, which many of you might have seen. You might remember C.J. Craig, the White House spokesperson, who pushed to give a comment about the burning to death of those schoolgirls. At first said, I don't have anything to say, and pushed a comment again. She was asked, are you outraged? She listed a whole list of crimes that the Saudi regime commits, but she very honestly wrapped it up, as I will now wrap it up, by saying, Saudi Arabia are partners in peace, fully recognizing that hypocrisy. I would add to that, Saudi Arabia, the partner of the West in peace, hypocrisy, and blood money. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mona Al-Tahar. We're now speaking against the motion, James Rubin. He served under President Clinton as Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs and was Chief Spokesman for the Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, and he writes a regular column for the British newspaper, The Sunday Times. Thank you. Mona presented a, an elaborate series of charges, all of which I assume to be accurate and all of which are outrageous. But that doesn't get to the question this House has been asked to debate. To get out of bed, you have to be in bed. I don't believe uh, the United States is any longer in bed with the Saudi government. First of all, obviously, Americans recognize that a lot of Saudi citizens were responsible for 9-11. The Saudi government obviously funded Wahhabism around the world, and that outraged Americans. But more importantly, since this last 25 years have gone by, the United States on the right regards the Saudi government as the leaders of Islamic fundamentalism. On the left regards everything Mona said is true. And so there is not a very comfortable relationship on the American side. But what's even more interesting is the Saudi side. Saudi Arabia doesn't think America is its partner anymore. And that changed after the Iraq War when George W. Bush showed, first of all, that the Shiite Iranian government was the big victor of the Iraq war. The Saudis hated that. And more importantly, he showed how incompetently the United States could run a large military operation. Now we have the Arab Spring. And what did the Saudis see? The United States throw, in their opinion, Mubarak under the bus. 
They were outraged by the way in which the United States chose the side of the people on the ground in Cairo rather than Mubarak. And they said, that could be us if things change here. They were seething with anger. So in the Saudi mind, what's this security guarantee worth if the country that's doing the guaranteeing is unreliable? But if you're going to insist that despite all this, despite the huge changes in the Saudi relationship with the United States, that we are somehow still in bed, um, look at the relationship with the Iranian agreement. The Saudi government is so concerned that the United States is going to tilt towards Iran that they were opposing an arms control agreement that's basically in their interest. So why would the Saudis be against it? Well, they're against it because they see Iran on the march as a result of American failures over and over. I'm not agreeing with this. I'm giving you their perspective. Look, the Arab Spring was a painful experience for those of us who believe in human rights and making changes uh, in, uh, in promoting democracy. Very painful. But we've seen what happened when the Arab awakening occurred. We have seen the dangers, we've seen the risks, and they are frightening. We now have what we said we would never have in the world, and a terrorist organization by the name of ISIS with a piece of real estate the size of a large Arab state in Iraq and Syria, with places to plan, to organize, and with a bloodthirstiness we've never seen before. And we need help in combating it. It's the sad truth. But as long as the United States is limiting its involvement, the British, the Europeans, and other countries, we need help. And that's why they are one of many countries helping in a coalition to fight ISIS. So these are very real practical issues. The real winner, I'm sorry to say, of the Arab awakening, at least for the moment, was the extremist Islamic groups. When you put all this together, and what you find is that the world has changed. Those of us who supported most uh, the use of force for democratic values are on our heels because there is a dangerous cancer growing in that part of the world in the form of ISIS and other extremist groups. We have to deal with that. We have to defeat that. And then we can get back to berating Arab governments for their democratic failings. We're either not in bed, so we can't get out of bed, or if we are in bed in this form, let's face it, we need to do what we need to do right now. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie Rubin. Thank you very much. Now our second speaker for the motion, and let me just remind you what the motion is, the West should get out of bed with the House of Saud. Hilary Mann Leverett. She served at the White House in both the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations, and she advocates U.S. rapprochement with Iran and is the co-author of Going to Tehran. You're going to be going to the lectern now, though, to make your arguments. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I started working for the U.S. Department of State back in 1990, at a high point in U.S.-Saudi and Western-Saudi relations, when our militaries came together to liberate Kuwait after Saddam Hussein's Iraq invaded. 
After 25 years, including multiple assignments in U.S. embassies across the Middle East and working in both Democratic and Republican White Houses, I have come to believe it imperative for the West to get out of bed with the House of Saud. I take this position because it is delusional to think that the security and financial benefits of collaborating with the Saudis serve Western interests. Instead, the so-called security and financial benefits of collaborating with Saudi Arabia need to be seen for what they are, dangerous enablers of a deeply self-damaging Western strategy toward the Middle East, a strategy largely responsible for the dramatic decline in America's international standing since the end of the Cold War and at an even faster clip since 9-11. Perpetuated long enough, this strategy will destroy America's status as a great power, dragging the West down with it. First, some argue that Saudi collaboration has been and remains essential to projecting Western, especially U.S., power in the Middle East. But this willfully overlooks how such power projection actually works to destabilize the Middle East and undermine Western interests. An extremely pernicious example of this dates back to July 1979, when the Carter administration joined with Saudi Arabia to arm, fund, and train jihadi militants in Afghanistan before the Soviet invasion. Many of these same jihadi militants turned their venom on the West, killing thousands on 9-11. Nevertheless, the West repeatedly succumbs to this day to the temptation of collaborating with Saudi Arabia to empower ever more jihadi militants in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria, in Yemen, against actors the West doesn't like. Each time, the West tells itself it derives short-term benefit from harming our designated adversary. Given this record, any claim that Saudi Arabia is now a partner in fighting jihadi groups is absurd. These groups literally would not exist but for Saudi Arabia, and it will not be the Saudis who help us defeat them. Another pernicious form of Saudi-enabled Western power projection is Saudi support for the deployment of hundreds of thousands of U.S. and Western troops to the Middle East over the past quarter century. The vast majority of Muslim publics in the Middle East now overwhelmingly see America and its partners as the biggest threat to their security and welfare. This is clearly a losing proposition for the West. Some argue that Saudi collaboration is essential to roll back Iran's rising regional influence. Again, it is delusional to think that that actually will advance Western interests. In reality, Western collaboration with Saudi Arabia against Iran is fueling potentially genocidal, mainly anti-Shia violence in the Middle East. At this point, the West cannot achieve any of its stated goals in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, in Afghanistan, on terrorism, on proliferation, on energy security, without productive, full-range relations with the Islamic Republic of Iran. Some argue that Saudi collaboration is essential to secure stable oil flows from the Persian Gulf to international energy markets. The oil market also rests on an assumption that the House of Saud will remain stably in power indefinitely. 
While some tout the smooth succession from Saudi King Abdullah to King Salman earlier this year, in fact, Salman and his coterie have changed the upper levels of Saudi political leadership more radically than at any point in Saudi history. By doing so, they have created dangerously high risks of intra-family conflict, conflict that is likely to lead to the fragmentation of the Saudi state with devastating consequences for stability on the Arabian Peninsula. It is imperative that the West not wait for popular revolution in Saudi Arabia with all the economic chaos and calamity that would come with it. At this juncture, the West position in the Middle East is in freefall. Staying in bed with the House of Saud only guarantees the West's irrevocable strategic failure in the Middle East and around the world. Thank you. Hilary, thank you. And uh, our second speaker against the motion is the senior Conservative MP here, Sir Alan Duncan. He was Minister of State for International Development until last year and is a leading voice in the UK on the Middle East, where he travels regularly. Make the way. Ladies and gentlemen, the fundamental assumption of this motion is that you can sit comfortably in your armchair, judge a country as as one that's not up to your standards, wag your finger, and then break with that country and think that you have somehow created a better world. Well, I think nothing could be further from the truth. And I'd like to put it to you bluntly that the proposers of this motion misunderstand the nature of foreign policy, they misread the current situation in Saudi Arabia itself and the Middle East more widely, and they misjudge how dangerous their proposed course of action would be. So there are things in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia that none of us like, and where I would agree with Mona and Hillary, I don't like judicial beheading. I don't like treating women as second-class citizens. I actually don't like a lot of the vulgar opulence and the extremes of inequality. And it's because of those elements in most of the arguments we've heard that this motion suggests that we face a choice and that we should decide between practical friendship on the one hand and disapproval and even divorce on the other. Such a simplistic choice is not how foreign policy does work, and it's not how foreign policy should work. So I think it's, if I can be blunt, facile and foolhardy to look at Saudi Arabia, conclude that there are aspects of the country we frown upon, which we do, and then resolve to put them in the naughty corner. I think that such a simple judgmental view both misunderstands the kingdom as it is, and even worse, it catastrophically fails to appreciate the consequences that would follow a decision to ostracize them. So first, let's look at Saudi Arabia as it is. And here, I would suggest, is the real weakness and paradox of the proposition. Something very important needs to be understood here. The Al Sauds, the ruling family, 
those who this motion wishes to condemn are actually more progressive, more liberal, and more enlightened than many of the people who they govern. It's many of the people, much more than the al Sauds themselves, who are hardline in their views. And you cannot blame everything you dislike in the country on those who rule it. So it's not the al Sauds who are financing ISIS or Daesh, whatever you want to call it. Some people within Saudi Arabia almost certainly have done so, but not the government. Indeed, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is now in the forefront of resisting ISIS and al-Qaeda. And without the al-Sauds, Saudi Arabia would not be doing that at all. We need the state. We need that kingdom to hold sway over non-state actors threatening the region. If they were to be shunned by the West, there would be a serious reaction internally. It would be wholly counterproductive. It would provoke and empower the extremists in their midst. It would not free up what is good. It would accentuate what is bad. And what if the Al-Sauds were to be displaced altogether? It would unleash a catastrophe of extremism, disorder, and uncertainty. And that is what invariably fills a power vacuum. Now, the Arab Spring has proved beyond all doubt the value of stability over chaos. No one should want to see the pain of Syria, Iraq, or Libya extend to the likes of Saudi Arabia or their neighbors. So, ladies and gentlemen, foreign policy is not about straightforward, easy choices between right and wrong, good and bad, in bed or out of bed. It's always about shades of gray. You cannot just flick a switch and create a liberal democracy overnight. So I think the movers of this motion are being naive. I think they're being reckless. I think they're being unwise. So I hope that all of you will join Jamie and me in rejecting their dangerous plan of action. Thank you very much indeed, Sir Alan. So there you have it. You've heard our four speakers, two for, two against the motion, give you their opening arguments. Now, I have a very interesting pre-debate result here, which I'm going to give you before we go to questions from the floor. And this was how they voted on our motion, the West should get out of bed with the House of Saud. So, agreeing with that motion, for the motion, 43%. Against the motion, 17%, And the don't know, 40%. So that's a, a, a very, very interesting result there because it means there's a great deal for both sides to play for. So now let us go to the floor. Okay. I would like to ask Munia, 
uh, what's your definition of democracy that you want to see in Saudi Arabia? Because if you're talking about Western democracy, I don't think it will apply in a traditional society like the Saudi society. If you're talking about the behaving and um, chopping hands, I think this is part of the Sharia law, which is accepted and wanted by the Saudi people. So what's your definition of democracy that you want the Saudis to apply? Thanks. Okay, thank you for that. Yes, Sir Sherrod Cooper-Coles, former British ambassador. I would say, ask the women of Saudi Arabia what they want. And they would want us, as Alan suggested, that we take the world not as we want it to be, but as it is. And they would want us to remain engaged with Saudi Arabia in our own interests, in the interests of the people of Saudi Arabia, in the interests of Iran, in the interests of the whole region. If you want stability in the Middle East, if you want a better future for the people of the Middle East, then vote against this motion. Okay, well, so... So, why don't we get that response from you there, Mona, on... um the definition of democracy that you think would work for Saudi Arabia and also the point about women in Saudi Arabia want you to be engaged. I used two words in my presentation that I'm going to repeat. One was exceptionalism, which addresses what you're saying about how Saudi Arabia has its own ways and they must be respected. And the other word that I used was apartheid, and I I called the way that women are treated in Saudi Arabia gender apartheid. And that word apartheid should remind you of a country that we also used the word apartheid against, and that was South Africa. So Sherrod and and, and the uh, Saudi women there in the audience said, the point is, even if you don't like the way women are treated in Saudi Arabia, that his point was, you want the West to engage still, and Saudi women want the West to engage with them. What has that engagement brought us, Zainab? That engagement has brought us very little. I gave you a catalogue of human rights abuses and violations, and in answer to your question, the Saudi woman here... Um, you asked me what's my definition of democracy. Well, my definition of democracy is freedom, and freedom doesn't change according to where you are. Freedom is about human rights. Freedom is about equality. Right. Freedom is a human right. Thank you. Hilary, briefly, if you would, please. Yes. I think our opposing side and some of the, the, in our commenter today put out a false argument. Of course we should engage with the Saudi government. The problem is that the West has focused its strategy on the Middle East artificially on propping up two governments that are not representative of their populations, the government of Israel and the government of Saudi Arabia. Both of them, though there are thousands of princes, they don't represent the Saudi population. And though, of course, there are millions of Jews in Israel, they don't represent the majority of the people under Israeli control. That's why both Israel and Saudi Arabia have turned to the United States for military protection to prop up their governments. Of course we should engage with them, like we should engage with all countries for constructive relations. The problem in having these skewed relations, these special relationships with the governments of Israel and Saudi Arabia is that it shields them okay. and enables them to, take, to, uh, to, to pursue policies that are damaging okay. to the West. Let's try and give it to Saudi Arabia, not... In hearing a little bit from Hillary about what has motivated her position here, I think we are living in a time warp. Yes, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you could plausibly argue that the United States was, quote, propping up the Saudi government. The world has changed since those days. I know you haven't worked in the government since then, but the Saudis don't see us as propping us up, them up anymore. I've got... 
Mm-hmm. I've got a question. I came in here uh, originally for the motion, and you've given an argument based quite substantially on human rights and abuses of human rights within Saudi Arabia, yet you put them in the same bracket as Hillary, is it, with a country like Israel, which is one of the only countries who have gay rights and women's rights far beyond most of the Arab countries. And secondly, how far do you think their abuse of human rights would go should we get out of bed with Saudi Arabia? Okay, thank you. There was somebody else with a microphone. I think there's another form of uh, apartheid in Saudi Arabia that hasn't been mentioned, as pernicious as uh, gender apartheid, which is religious apartheid. No, no, No one has mentioned what happens to Christians in that country. Uh, over the course of the evening, I've been rather persuaded by the real politique of, uh, of uh, James Rubin and, uh, and Sir Alan, uh, but something makes me stop into, uh, before siding with them, that how can one relate to a country that transgresses human rights to that appalling degree, really? And, and uh, when we look at South Africa, uh, which is a, is, a, is a reasonable comparison, I think, finally South Africa was brought into the community of nations. Saudi Arabia doesn't belong there. And now that is Iran, for that matter. Jamie, briefly, and panel, do keep your responses fairly tight. You're right. There are serious freedom uh, impingements of the rights of people to, to, to go to church, to express their religion in Saudi Arabia, as there are in all the things that Mona said. Religion is, is one of the things she didn't say. She said most of the others. The question always is, what do you do about it? And I think where Alan uh, really put the question to our opponents is how do you improve things? And I've been part of this debate with the U.S. government when we went at this question of how do you improve things. And it's a difficult subject. Do you cut off ties? Do you cut off trade? Do you try to get them expelled from organizations? Do you shine a light? And I think in the end, our best chance of making change is to use the tools of the U.S. government to shine a light on the okay. problems. All right. Just very quickly so I can go to the floor. This isn't so hard in terms of what to do. If we didn't have a privileged relationship with Saudi Arabia and with Israel, and we had better relations, full-range relations with every country, with every regional relevant actor, they would balance themselves. Okay. We wouldn't so have to constantly intervene with hundreds of thousands of The answer is they troops. would balance themselves. The human yeah. rights abuses wouldn't get worse. Okay. I, I, I have to say very, very quickly, quickly okay, so I can go to the The red-haired floor. corner has to answer the white-haired corner <laughs> accusation that I didn't do my job. My job here, Alan, was not to give alternatives or to give advice to the West. My job was to answer the motion, which was the West should get out of bed, and I think I gave very clear okay. reasons why the West should get out of bed. And I think that it's very important to remember that when it comes to Saudi Arabia, it's not just Islamists, as my debate partner has mentioned, are the opponents of the Saudi royal family. There is also a massive liberal population in Saudi that is always ignored and they have to be considered in this because it's not just a bunch of crazy lunatic fundamentalists that the Saudi regime has helped be the only alternative. The Saudi regime, like other regimes in the region, actively oppose any alternative but the lunatic fringe to scare you. Who's got the microphone? Yes, go ahead, please. Um, I've got a very clear picture of what the opposition are proposing, we, you know, what, we, what we should vote against. But what does voting for this motion look like? What are we supposed to do? I'm getting the impression that the, the, the argument I'm hearing is this House condemns the House of Saad for all of its human rights, abu- rights abuses. But that sounds like a different motion. So what, what is it we'd be voting for? Okay, all right. Um, 
Can I go to the top tier? There's somebody there. Yeah. Um, hi there. This, is, this stage is more of a comment. Mm-hmm. It's uh, why are we not talking about the big elephant, the big white elephant in the room, which is oil? Why is Saudi Arabia globally relevant when Yemen and Sudan isn't, for example? Okay. Thank you. Uh, I'm a former oil trader. Before I was a politician, I was in the oil business. And so much rubbish is spoken about oil, I have to say. First thing I'd say is, if you don't like it, try living for a week without it, and you won't be able to. But the United States is more or less now self-sufficient in oil. So the significance of producers as a geopolitical partner are much diminished. But it is the world who have to keep their oil supplies going. It's not uniquely a US or a UK relationship with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. They need the money from the oil. They don't need the oil. Right. Very briefly. It's a critically important question because the, what's put out there all the time is that we need the Saudis for oil. That's, the bargain is that we need the Saudis for oil. Here, it's not just a Saudi problem. This is where the complicity, yeah. the dysfunctionality of the relationship of being in bed with the Saudis is so important. We work with, we collaborate with the Saudis to use oil as a weapon against other countries, whether it's Iran to impose sanctions on Iran, whether it's but, Russia okay. to impose sanctions on Russia. If it weren't for that, if we weren't using oil as a weapon, collaborating with the Saudis, there would be much more diversity of supply. The U.S. itself doesn't I, need I, I Saudi said oil. said you will hear rubbish talked about oil. You have just heard well, it. You just said that... <laughs> let's go to the floor, please, and let's take several questions or comments. Yes? With all due respect to the yes side, I think if you're going to take the question seriously, you have got to think about what happens next. So if we get out of bed with the House of Saud, who are they going to turn to instead? Particularly, they're after so many weapons and support. Um, President Putin looks like a good bet, and with his well-known record on gay rights and uh, ethnic minorities, that may not be an improvement. So I think we have got to consider that. Thank you. Um, This lady here in the yellow. I get a little bit suspicious whenever I hear anybody talk about shades of grey, for lots of reasons. Uh, but mainly because it sounds like the sort of thing you say before you put aside principles. The greatest steps forward in humanity have happened when people have put aside shades of grey and have decided that things are important. And I also think that it's a very unfair burden to place on the proposition to come up with some alternative version. And so I would put the burden back on the opposition and I would, and I would say, how, how bad would it have to get in Saudi Arabia before you decided it was worth getting out of bed with them? I think the opposition have made a very skilful case, but I think they've created rather a false choice. Um, Getting out of bed with Saudi Arabia is not the same as not engaging at all with Saudi Arabia. And when we're asked what does this mean, could I suggest what it might mean? One, we shouldn't sell arms of a very sophisticated kind on the scale we do, massively, arms that Saudi Arabia doesn't need and can't actually probably use properly. Secondly, we shouldn't have stood idly by without any condemnation when the Saudis moved troops into uh, Bahrain. I don't think James Rubin is right to say the United States is not uh, supporting the stance that Saudi Arabia has taken in Yemen. It is not necessary to be completely disengaged from Saudi Arabia simply by getting out of bed. We shouldn't be aiding them so much in their foreign policy. Be very clear the United States supports the Saudis in Yemen. 
Okay, so please take that into consideration. Look, you can imagine a, a, a hell on earth, and the place that comes closest to that right now is that little place where ISIS controls part of Syria and part of Iraq, where people are burned to death in front of the cameras, where people's heads are cut off in rows on the beach because they come from a different religion. The hell on earth in the Middle East exists. It's in the ISIS portion of Iraq and Syria. And so I'm happy to, to worry about how bad Saudi Arabia could get someday. I've been there. I can assure you it's not that bad as, as ISIS. And I'd like to focus, as one does in life, one has priorities. And the priority right now is to defeat those extremists who now have a place, a state. We always said after 9-11, imagine if a, a, a terrorist organization had a state within which to plan and organize, and they have visas to come back to Europe and the United States. We're going to be having a debate, okay. if we don't deal with this 10 years from, go, uh, from now, about why we okay. didn't stop ISIS when we All had right. the chance. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, at the back there, the lady. Mm -hmm. I have a comment. Um, I actually don't think the United States should be in bed with anyone in the Middle East. <laughs> I think that they should be absolutely out of bed with anyone. They should be a, a credible broker of the truth. Um, and they should actually, regarding ISIS, they should actually get the Saudis and the Iranians to form an army to combat ISIS. And that would put Saudi Arabia in a better stance with the rest of the world because my view of Saudi Arabia is they're, they're perhaps the largest sponsors of terrorism in the world. All right. This lady here, yes. Uh, I'm one, I want to address uh, Mr. Rubin. Uh, 2016 is coming up real quick in America. We have an inept president, and this man just probably is, it could have helped in that area of the world, but chose not to because he's a coward, and he's totally inept. But now, who do you think in 2016 has got a shot? Uh, and what do you think the situation is if we get a Republican president, which I'm hoping and begging for. Uh, okay. <laughs> She's asking. Stop. No, no, no. I want to know what you would think would happen with a relationship with America with Saudi Arabia. Yes, okay. So Thank who you. do you think is going to have a relationship with Saudi Arabia out of the possible presidential candidates? One more and then we'll go to the panel. Yep. Hi, I'm a student who lived in Saudi Arabia, and I'd just like to ask both sides what would happen to America if they got out of bed with Saudi Arabia. Well, well the West, the West is a lot bigger than America. Um, all right, let's, let's, let's take a response here from the audience. Mona, I've come to relieve you. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Over Some and point. over, I've heard many of you keep asking myself and Hillary, what is the alternative? What are you proposing? That is not the motion here. The motion... Instead, you should be asking our opposition, how has staying in bed, and I think the West, and, not, and the West is definitely not the US. I mentioned Canada. I will remind you of Sweden, where the, the foreign minister was prohibited from addressing the Arab League because she had the nerve to bring up the terrible human rights record of Saudi Arabia. You should be asking the opposition, how has decades and decades of colluding with the Saudi regime helped 
ordinary Saudis. It hasn't. It has made it almost impossible to oppose the regime because the regime knows that the West will allow it to get away, literally with murder and with various human rights violations. So it's the responsibility of our opposition to show you how this cowardly foreign policy of constantly colluding with the Saudis helps ordinary Saudis. It does not. Eight decades... Eight decades of an alliance between the West and Saudi Arabia. What's it achieved? The the question does hang on what would replace them if they were to be displaced. The idea that the West is some kind of cohesive grouping is, I think, um, impractical. Um, Well, let me put it this way. The best advice I ever received as a politician was if you're really stuck, find a way of blaming the French. And (laughs) so, but but the, the... The real point is that it's just so easy, as I said in my opening remarks, to sit in your armchair and say, they're bad, they're bad, they're bad, we're going to have nothing to do with them. But it does matter in the real world what then would follow. And the danger is that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia turns into ISIS++. If you want that, good on you, well done, congratulations, you'll pretend that you were never here tonight. Okay, thanks. It was your view. Jamie Rubin, and I'll come to you briefly and then back to the floor. Just very briefly, I think the question was how Saudi Arabia, relations with Saudi Arabia might play in the upcoming yes, elections. Yes, uh, I don't think there's a big difference between Democrats and Republicans about Saudi Arabia, except to the extent it relates to another subject, which is the Iran agreement. And there, there are big differences. But I think it's fair to say that on the right, there's great anger at Saudi Arabia because of 9-11 and all the... Uh, long-term funding of Wahhabism. And on the left, there's great anger because of all the things that Mona said. We don't get to decide what kind of government people have. And, and frankly, that's been the big loser okay. of, of the Arab Spring. Democratic values in the Middle East have taken a hit because of the direction things have gone. Very quickly, Hillary. Proponents of a dysfunctional relationship with Saudi Arabia constantly put out the boogeyman, either that the alternative is ISIS, ignoring the fact that it's U.S.-Saudi collaboration that first created the Taliban, then al-Qaeda, and now ISIS. And then... And then they... They put, they put forward the alternative boogeyman that, that there's, there's no alternative because there's no way to engage a government in a normal way. Okay. We have to have a dysfunctional relationship with them where we ply them with $80 billion in weapons to have a normal relationship. Well, that doesn't work around the world. That's not what's real okay. foreign policy. That's not realpolitik. What the opposition is arguing is delusional. Okay. I now have the results of this Intelligence Squared debate. I need a drum roll. Um, And the motion, of course, let me remind you all, was the West should get out of bed with the House of Saud. This is how the audience here has voted after they've heard our speakers and put questions to them. For the motion, this side, 47%. Against the motion, this side, 49%. But don't know... The don't know has gone down dramatically from 40% to 4%. So the audience here in Cadogan Hall is with you. Against the motion, you also have had the biggest swing in favour of your arguments. Very, very interesting debate result.
Well, very, very interesting debate result there. Congratulations to, to, to this side. Our thanks to all the speakers on our panel, the audience here at Cadogan Hall in London, and of course you, wherever you are, watching this uh, debate on BBC World TV. Thank you very much indeed to Intelligence Squared for making this debate possible. From me, Zain Abadawi, and all of the team, thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.